I haven't preached behind a pulpit since uh, spring of 1998. We're going to give it a shot this morning. We'll see what happens. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Jesus is. This is what we've called our study as we have been spending some time in the biblical book of Hebrews. Jesus is. And today we begin our look at Jesus as our high priest. This is going to take a few weeks because the author of Hebrews packs a ton of greatness into these middle chapters of Hebrews. And we're going to spend some time unpacking that uh, beginning this morning. So Jesus as our high priest. Who knows what the role of high priest in the Old Testament was? Who was he? What, what did he do? Actual question. The role of high priest in the Old Testament. Okay. Led the sacrifices for the people. Good. He was a Levite. Good. An interceptor. Good. Yeah, which, uh, Becky, could be a football term. Oh, an intercessor. That's different. Other things. The Old Testament high priest. He went into the Holy of Holies. Great. Great tie-in. Great. Yes, like we just sang. Perfect. Great song choice, Tim. That's right. I figured you guys would know most of that, and I figured I wouldn't have to spend too much time talking about the role of the Old Testament high priest. Our text today gives us a good thumbnail of what he did as well. This is Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. This is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Now that is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God. Who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's a good description of the Old Testament high priest, yes? I mean, the basic function, as it said in 5 verse 1, was to represent God to the people and the people to God. So a few more little facts and tidbits that will help fill in the picture. The high priest was the supreme religious leader of the Israelites. This was a hereditary position passed on, uh, traced back from Moses' brother Aaron. Uh, The high priests were to be whole physically, meaning without any physical defects, and holy in their conduct. Whole physically and holy in their conduct. Now, with the high priest being a leadership position, uh, he was also an overseer of the subordinate priests. One interesting uh, kind of random fact, when the high priest died, all the people that had been confined to the cities of refuge for accidentally killing somebody else were granted freedom. Now, the high priest would offer sin offerings. Somebody said they would offer sacrifices, both for himself if he sinned and the whole community. And the most important duty of the high priest was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. Only he was allowed behind the curtain, behind the veil. Only he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. 
Having made a sacrifice for himself and for the people, the high priest would then take the blood of the sacrifice and take it into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He did this to make atonement for himself and for the people for the sins that they had committed in that previous year. Now it is this particular service, this day of atonement service, that really draws connections to Jesus as our high priest. And having heard all this, it's probably easy for us to see how Christ is, uh, is the logical fit for being our high priest, isn't it? I mean, in, in our study of Hebrews, we've already seen that Jesus is God's son. He's true humanity. He's the perfect pioneer. He's greater than angels, greater than Moses. So this is all what qualifies him to be high priest, right? Everything nice and tidy. I mean, look at chapter 4, verse 14 of Hebrews. So then, it says, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, let Jesus, or Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Entered heaven. Ascended into heaven. Many of your translations will say he passed through the heavens. Various Jewish writings speak of different levels of heavens. Paul spoke of being caught up in the third heaven. And Solomon, when he was talking about the temple, talked about the heaven and heavens of all heavens cannot contain God. The Jews believed that the highest level of heaven was to be in the very presence of God the Father, there at his side. That's what our text is saying. So if Jesus, as high priest, had passed through the heavens directly into the presence of God the Father, that'd be pretty cool, right? I mean, nice and tidy. That may qualify him to be our high priest, to be in the inner sanctuary, the inner heaven of heavens with the Father. Now with Jesus there, we do And let me emphasize this, we do get to experience the benefits of his high priestly role in the Father's presence. We do get to hold firmly to our confession of faith, to what we believe, as it says in verse 14. And we can, as it says in verse 16, come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. These are truths that we can cling to in good times and in hard times. This is an invitation from from our high priest, Jesus, to come boldly, to enter into God's presence, to receive the mercy and grace that these verses talk about. So I encourage you, hold tightly to these promises, to these truths. This morning we're talking about Christ as our high priest. And I've laid out the role, with your help, as to who and what the high priest is and does. And we've been reminded of all the great things and the great names that Jesus has been called. And I've said a couple of times that these are what qualify Jesus for the role of high priest. So are they? Is the nice and tidy, is the through the heavens and the God's inner courts what qualify Jesus to be the high priest? In my mind, and bear with me because you get a glimpse into my crazy mind. In my mind, if we were to say Jesus were present, which he is, but if he were physically in bodily form here right now, given the no defects uh, aspect of the Old Testament and the holy requirements of the Old Testament, I would picture Jesus behind a pulpit. I would picture him in in a suit and jacket 
with his tie all the way up. I would, I would picture him as God's son like that. True humanity, perfect pioneer, greater than angels and Moses. I would picture him like this. Okay? And hear me on this. I'm not saying me, but I'm saying my appearance. An outwardly having it together person. Kind of holy looking. You know, what you would think of when you're going to church. In a location that kind of screams authority. That, in my head, is what would qualify Jesus to be high priest. But that's not true. That is not true. My version, the New Living Standard of of Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 begins like this. It says, In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. In this way. Now, if you're reading from any other translation besides the New Living, you're probably going to see something about God making Jesus perfect or or Jesus being perfected by. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. We're going to stick with this translation right now where it says, In this way way God qualified him as a perfect high priest. Now in what way? In the nice and tidy, has it all together, can claim a lot of great names and good things about himself type of way? No. No. Jesus was qualified for the role of perfect high priest not because he stood behind a pretty pulpit and wore a suit and tie or or a fancy robe. Not just because he was God's son. Jesus was qualified for the role of high priest, the position of high priest, by a more painful and brutal process. And our text today describes that process. Chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. Now the translation reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, I think we often take this verse and we see the empathy Jesus has for us. We see the high priest as sympathetic to our plight because he's been there. He's gone through it too, right? Well, and here's the deal. Christ did go through anything that we could have gone through in our human condition. Any testing, any temptation that we could have gone through, he went through it. But we could not claim to have gone through any testing or temptation that Jesus went through. You follow me? He can claim to have gone through any temptation or tempting that we have gone through, but we could not claim to have gone through any temptation or testing that he went through. Why? Because the last five words in verse 15, yet he did not sin. Yet he did not sin. It's easy for us to see that and think, of course he didn't sin. He's God. He's God wrapped in human flesh. We know that. We know he was perfect. We know he didn't sin. But the fact of those five words that he did not sin should alert us to the amount of testing that he went through. He went through our human experience, but since he didn't sin, his battle, his testings, his temptations were immeasurably harder. Why? Because we fall to temptation. We all fall. Scripture is clear on that. 
The tempter has never had to put his full force, his fiercest temptations on any of us because we fall way before he gets there. But he had to do that to Jesus. For Jesus, who was tempted and yet did not sin, the tempter had to put everything he had into his attacks. Everything. And Jesus withstood it. One commentator compared it to pain. It says the human threshold for pain is only so high. At some degree, every human will will have too much pain and they will pass out. So there's a threshold of pain that humanity does not know. He says it's the same with temptations. There's a threshold of temptations that we do not know because we fall. Some may hold on longer than others, but everyone falls. Jesus didn't. He didn't. So let's, let's go visual for a moment, okay? Actually, for the rest of the message. If Jesus went through all of these temptations, the fiercest of fiercest of attacks from Satan, do you think he would have come out looking like this? No, okay? I think, you know, best case, I think, I think the jacket probably would have come off, okay? He's going through these massive testings, things that were hard, Right? And I, and I think he probably maybe would have gone a little bit there. He would have rolled, he would have rolled up a sleeve and, and oh, it would have gotten kind of hard, right? And more than likely, these tests, they're, they're not easy. So he's, he's going through this. He's got the, the, the dust and the mud of, of temptations, right? I mean, are you tracking with me? This is not easy for Christ. And yet it says he did not sin. He did not sin. In this way, God made him perfect. The perfect high priest, right? But there's more. There's more. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses he's able to deal gently with wayward and ignorant people that word deal gently or feel gently is almost an untranslatable greek term the greek word is matriopathine i do i have it up there good Uh, for the greeks that culture they always defined virtue as a mean or an average between two extremes Virtue for the Greek was a balance. So the Greeks defined matriopathine as the mean or the average between extravagant grace and utter indifference. The mid-course between explosions of anger and lazy indulgence. Now for our situation, with how the high priest feels gently towards people, his matriopathine, it, it means, and I quote a commentary, the ability to bear with people without getting irritated and annoyed. It means the ability not to lose one's temper with people when they're foolish, when they do the same things over and over again, when they don't learn, when it seems like they're senselessly blind. It's the attitude which never regards a man as hopelessly lost, but often sees him as a contrary child of God who needs to somehow be gently led back to the Father. To feel gently toward. And and who does Jesus feel gently toward? According to our text, he's able to deal gently, feel gently with the ignorant. 
We often paint that in a, in a negative light. But in the Greek, ignorance simply means to not know. To not know. In Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, God's giving, uh, giving instructions to Moses about how to deal with people who sin and don't know, who are, who are ignorant in it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. This is how you are to deal with those who sin unintentionally by doing what, anything that violates one of the Lord's commands. Now, the remainder of chapter 4 and half of chapter 5 speak of this in cases of inadvertent, ignorant sins for people who don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of like that fan who's, who's at the game, right? He's cheering for the game, and, and he's thinking, himself, yes, yes, he just, and he, he's like, can't wait to, he didn't know, right? He was ignorant. But, but not in the sense that we think it. Ignorant. Am I trying to preach without a napkin? Ignorant. Jesus has to feel gently. Deal gently with these type of people. And yes, he may have this material pathine, but I imagine it's got to be hard at times. Toward the ignorant. Now, Jesus also has to deal gently with, feel gently with another sort of person. It's in verse 2 also. He's able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward people. Wayward. The Greek word is planeo, and it means to lead astray, to deceive, to cause to wander. We get our English word planet from this, and planet means wandering body. The term, as used in Scripture, nearly always conveys the sin of roaming. So Jesus, as high priest, is in the process of being qualified for that role by dealing gently, feeling gently towards people who intentionally sin, who choose to walk away, and who choose to lead other people with them. This cannot be easy for him. One of the hardest times in my pastoral ministry was when I had somebody who was disgruntled come to me and to my face tell me bluntly, it is my job to divide the church. This person did all they could to deceive as many people as they could, to lead them wayward. And Jesus has to deal with these people all the time. Intentional people. It's the person who comes up and says, hey, let's, let's have a little fun. Right? With a sharpie that won't come off. It's the person who, you know, they, they, find, the, they find the juice in the, uh, in the back of the closet and they say, let's, let's go put it on somebody because oh, it's going to stain. Wayward. Purposeful, purposeful sinners. Jesus is in the process of being qualified for a high priest because of this. It's not neat and tidy Is it? No. In this way. But God wasn't done. Listen to verse 7. Chapter 5. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. 
And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Prayers and pleadings, it says. Prayers is the Greek word meaning praying for a specific need, a felt need, a heartfelt petition arising out of a deep personal need. Now, pleadings and, and petitions or supplication, the Greek word literally means an olive branch. It, it means an earnest supplication for peace. So Jesus is there offering prayers and pleading for peace to the one who could rescue him from death. Now, most scholars believe that this is an echo, this is a flashback to the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where the gospel writers describe three times the way Jesus pleaded with the Father for a different way. Listen to it. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 and following. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter and James and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here with me and keep watch. He went on a little farther and he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, this awful hour might might pass him by. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering from me. And I imagine that as he's praying there, he's on his knees, right? And he he comes up with grass in there and he's, he's just, he's so, he's like just torn by in any way possible. Father, please. Prayers and pleadings. Prayers. And pleadings. It says, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears. A loud cry. The word the author uses here for cry is significant. See, it's the word croge. And it is a cry that a person does not choose to utter, but one that that is wrung up from the very depths of someone's soul, wrung from him even involuntarily in the stress and agony of something tremendous, some tremendous tension and searing pain. One Bible dictionary says it's, it's clamorous screaming or shrieking that is extremely boisterous, like a wounded person emitting unearthly, non-human types of sounds. One year ago today, To this day, I'm sure that people in this congregation cried like this as our brother Jerry Prophet went home to be with the Lord. Tears that welled up that we could not control. Crogay. Earlier this week, Abby and I have some friends that that some of you know. Uh, So a week ago, Monday, their son, 10-year-old son, okay, he's been having kind of cold-like symptoms for a couple of weeks. And, and all of a sudden, his, his legs start going numb. So they take him to the hospital, and in a matter of an afternoon, he goes from, I'm just not feeling well, to, to legs numb, to having trouble breathing, to paralyzed from the chest down, to on an intubator in an ICU with, with a virus attacking his spinal cord that I can't even pronounce. You've got to believe that those parents were crying out from the depths of their being, a cry that they just could not utter on their own. They were crogay. And for the freshman named Abby at Northwest Christian, who is in surgery right now, who's had headaches this week, when her parents took her to the doctor, they found a mass on her brain, and she's having surgery right now. You have got to believe that those parents are calling out crogay 
And you've got to believe that there is just some power in it. There's just, you know, they are, they are just doing all they possibly can to cry out to the Father. And our text, our text says that Jesus offered loud cries. The gospel writer Luke says Jesus prayed more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that sweat fell to the ground like drops of blood. I wonder, putting what all the scholars say aside about this being a flashback to the Garden of Gethsemane, has Jesus ever had to cry like that for me? Has he ever had tears well up that he cannot control for, for the way I am? for what I've said, for what I've done. Has he ever done that for you? While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. The text says that God heard his prayers God heard him. God heard Jesus, and his answer was no. His answer was no. Verse 8, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Jesus, his prayer in the garden was for another way. But he would do the Father's will. He would go through what the Father deemed necessary. He would obey. And verse 9 says, In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In this way. Going through the testings and temptations that we cannot even begin to fathom. By learning to deal gently, to feel gently with the ignorant and with the wayward. By offering prayers and pleadings and loud cries that were heard by God and yet the response was no. In this way. All the experiences, the sufferings, the obedience through which Jesus passed, this is what qualified him to be our high priest. In this way, most of your texts say Jesus was perfected or made perfect. And I love how N.T. Wright describes that phrase. He said Jesus must learn what it means to be his father's obedient son. And what will mean, and that will mean suffering. Not because God is, is a sadist or who, who simply wants to see his dear son have a rough time of it, but because the world which God made and loves is a dark and wicked place, and the son must suffer its sorrow and pain in order to rescue it, to be made perfect, to be perfected, to be qualified for. 
It doesn't mean Jesus was imperfect before in the sense that he had sinned, but that he needed to attain the full stature of sonship through experiencing the pain and grief of the Father himself over a world gone wrong. Jesus became truly and fully what in his nature he already was. In this way, he was qualified as high priest. Not because he's neat and tidy. Not because he stands behind a pulpit with his suit and tie on. Not just because he's God's son and didn't sin. He's qualified because he went through this for us. And this, this may be unorthodox, but I believe, I believe he still looks like this. Now, Paul would say this isn't a word from the Lord. This is just my opinion. Even in Jesus' resurrected body, I think he did not take off the broken, the torn, the stained, the beatenness that he went through when he went into God's presence in heaven. You could still see the scars. I think he's still fully human and he's still there begging God, beseeching God for us. Now, if this is the case, does it change how we come boldly into his throne room? Does it change how we enter into his presence? I think it does for me. In a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. And I'd like to invite you to prayerfully reflect on this message. Reflect on whether or not it does something for you or something in you. And when you're ready, I would invite you to come and and take communion. I'm going to to move this uh, past the mess. You see, Christ is our high priest. And he did make that sacrifice that atoned for our sins. Except he did it once and for all. Hebrews 9.28 says, So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And we get to remember that this morning. Christ as our high priest. Let's pray. Jesus, you know that this text this week uh, worked me. You know it did a number on my own heart, my own soul, how I view you. And God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you weren't just qualified because you were perfect. You weren't just qualified because you were God's son. I thank you that you went through what you did for each one of us. And that qualifies you as high priest. And God, I ask that you would help us claim that. The most basic of Old Testament views of the high priest, the person who stood there to represent God to the people and the people to God, I pray that you would allow us to see you as that, to claim you as that, and to be brought into the Holy of Holies by you. God, I thank you for your sacrifice, for your body that was broken. 
for your blood that was shed. I ask your blessing on these elements as, as we come and take them. May they nourish us, yes, physically, but spiritually. May they remind us of what you went through. God, don't let us be the same after this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.